The following is a production of Tablet Studios, in association with the WNET Group's reporting initiative, Exploring Hate, Anti-Semitism, Racism, and Extremism, and with support from Maimonides Fund. 1929, the financial house of cards collapses, and the overinflated stock market plunges into a Great Depression. Just how traumatizing was the Great Depression? Even today, nearly a century later, it's hard to come to terms with how thoroughly this event shocked and disrupted the country. Soon after the massive stock market crash of 1929, one-third of all American banks collapsed. What you see gathered outside the stock exchange are due to the greatest crash in the history of the New York Stock Exchange in market prices. One in four Americans were without a job, and a whole lot of people lost their homes. Where did all these people go? Giant shanty towns, poorly constructed, miserable encampments for the newly homeless and jobless. There were around 6,000 of them nationwide. In some cities, government officials tried to burn these ramshackle communities to the ground. But they kept sprouting up because people had nowhere else to go. The shanty towns weren't much to look at, but they were fully functioning societies. Some even elected their own mayors. No matter which of these tent cities you were in, from Seattle to St. Louis, you'd hear folks calling them by the same name, Hoovervilles. Across the country, nearly everyone blamed the Great Depression on President Herbert Hoover and his Republican Party. People were so fed up that they were ready for a radical change. If you were in a Hooverville, lucky enough to have a radio, you could probably hear where that change might be coming from. There was one man on the airwaves who, he reminded his listeners, was completely financially supported by the people totally free of corporate influence. The country's biggest truth-teller, with God on his side. And by no means do I intend to retreat from this fight of driving the money changers from the temple. They may hold power over politicians, but they hold no power over a pulpit of a Catholic church that dares preach for the alleviation of misery that dares inveigh against usury and that dare clamors for an honest living annual wage free from the sins of the past and free from the excesses of the future. God be with you. God be with all of us in this fight that shall last until death comes if necessary. From Tablet Studios and Exploring Hate, this is Radioactive, a podcast about the life and legacy of Father Charles Coughlin, the radio priest and American demagogue. I'm Andrew Lapin. Episode 4, Driving the Money Changers from the Temple. Economists, historians, and policymakers 
spent decades studying the precise causes of the Great Depression. Watching it unfold in real time, Father Charles Coughlin had little doubt who was to blame. Bankers, perfidious politicians, and the communists who had infiltrated labor leadership. The exploited masses of labor, victimized by prolific promises of politicians, and deceived so frequently by unsound labor leaders. In July of 1930, less than a year into the Great Depression, Coughlin made his way to Washington, D.C. to testify before Congress. By then, his broadcasts were devoted largely to sharing his favorite theory. America was under attack. The Reds in Russia were spreading chaos and discontent. It was the communists who gave us the father of this ominous revolution, the Hebrew Karl Marx. This is America. Let it be a Christian America. Guided by the principles, not of the atheist Jew, Karl Marx, but by the principles of the Christian Jew, Jesus Christ. These allegations were music to the ears of Congressman Hamilton Fish III. Fish saw communism as a clear and present danger. They were fighting it efficiently in Germany, he thought, which is why he sponsored a study of a promising anti-communist party rising through the ranks, the National Socialists. Fish also used his office to distribute copies of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, the anti-Semitic forgery we discussed in Episode 1. The Protocols were a helpful tract, he believed, if you wanted to understand who controlled all the money in the world. In Father Coughlin, he found a clear and unequivocal voice to deliver a warning against the dangers to the honest Christian-American way of life. Here's a reenactment of Coughlin's testimony before Fish's congressional committee. Have you had occasion to come into contact with some communistic activities? Yes, sir, to this extent. I have a chain of broadcasting stations, and I have received 300,000 letters from my work in this field. Isn't it that the communists seek to socialize by direct force? I will give you a little information. Any American who professes to have dabbled into this subject of socialism has heard of the name of Adam Weishaupt. The German professor in the year 1776 organized his sympathetic associates into the Order of the Illuminati. Said he, destroy Christianity and civilization will be happy. Such is the thought of the Old Testament, if I may call it such, of socialism. Such is the religion of its author. And do you think there is any danger of the communists making great strides? Yes, sir. In the French Revolution, there were only 22,000 interested in it. The Russian Revolution of 1917 had less than 500,000 communists in it that were interested in it. We have approximately 500,000 communistically-minded people in this country, at least. Unrest is on the increase. Do you think there is any danger of communism in this country? I think by 1933, unless something is done, you will see a revolution in this country. This was the story of an imminent communist revolution, and the one honest priest fighting it. It was precisely the sort of soap opera radio was made for. And it brought Father Coughlin a steadily growing stream of listeners. So many that by the fall of 1930, CBS began syndicating his programs. Nationwide at first, 
and then, via a shortwave setup, to the entire world. How dramatic was Father Coughlin's rise? Again, numbers alone tell a stunning story. Three weeks after CBS started carrying Coughlin's program, according to his biographer, Donald Warren, the radio priest received so many letters, it took 55 clerks to sort them all out. That number jumped to 96 clerks within a year, and soon the United States Postal Service had to build a post office in Royal Oak dedicated entirely to letters addressed to Father Charles Coughlin. In an average week, Warren estimated, Father Coughlin received 80,000 letters. But at the time, those numbers could get even more exaggerated. Father Coughlin becomes a full-fledged national character. His secretarial staff looks like big business. It must be ready to answer a million letters in a single week. At that date, ladies and gentlemen, you had challenged me by millions of your letters. The letter writers were thanking Coughlin for revealing the communist threat. Coughlin was telling them exactly what to do about it. Before they grow more forceful and powerful, it is time to eradicate them mentally, spiritually, and physically from our midst. It is a combat upon whose outcome the destiny of America hinges. Not all Americans were thrilled with Father Coughlin's sermons. At least 350,000 of them wrote in to tell CBS that the radio priest was trafficking in wild and spurious accusations. The network was starting to get nervous that their star pundit was crossing one too many lines. Not one to let a good conflict go to waste, Father Coughlin rose to the occasion. Shortly after New Year's Day of 1931, he put out a press release and announced that he would not be broadcasting his sermon that week. Nameless enemies had perpetrated, quote, a cowardly behind-the-back attack with the hope of throttling free speech. Giving the drama a week to build up, Father Coughlin returned to the radio pulpit on January 11th to deliver his sermon. It was entitled Prosperity and it said that the roots of America's depression woes could be found in the Treaty of Versailles that ended World War I. Coughlin said this international agreement had manipulated the stock market, wrecked businesses, and demolished the American middle class in the name of peace, and opened the doors for unscrupulous reds to get a toehold in the United States. Right after World War I, you see a lot of nationalists talk about what they can thought of as threats to their nation's sovereignty. Paul Hanebrink is a historian of European nationalism and anti-Semitism at Rutgers University. There's somehow this threat that it was both a fifth column within and yet forces without, and there's somehow this shadowy connection between them that is undermining sovereignty. I think that anxiety and that fear is very common. There's a special variant of it within kind of right-wing Catholic context, but it's also very common across nationalist cultures and nationalist contexts and you know, from, from country to country. By the end of that season, CBS had dropped Father Coughlin from its schedule. He was getting too controversial for them. By that point, he didn't need them. 
In the fall of 1931, he began assembling a network of his own, made up of independent stations everywhere from St. Louis to Portland, Maine. By 1932, he had 27 stations carrying his word, financially supported by regular small donations from his listeners, the Radio League of the Little Flower. As much as Father Coughlin loved to rant about communists secretly infiltrating the nation, he knew the country's biggest villain was right out there in the open. Just ask anyone who lived in a Hooverville. The fall of 1931, when Coughlin went independent, was also when the presidential election was beginning to heat up. President Hoover was struggling to beat back the charge that the Great Depression was his fault. I rest the case of the Republican Party upon the intelligence and the just discernment of the American people. Should my, should my countrymen again place upon me the responsibilities of this high office, I shall carry forward the work of reconstruction. The president was a perfect target for a radio star on the rise. There was another reason why Coughlin could now feel emboldened to attack the White House. Without CBS, he didn't have to worry about corporate sponsors or network standards stopping him. He only needed the continued approval of his superior, Bishop Gallagher, who willingly granted it to his favorite pupil. From his pulpit in Royal Oak, the priest was ready to take aim at the biggest target in America. In a sermon broadcast on February 12, 1932, Father Coughlin told his listeners that Hoover was behind an investment scam that helped wealthy fat cats get richer by convincing the public to throw their funds into largely worthless mines. Here's a reenactment of that speech. In 1912, Mr. Herbert Hoover termed as idiots those people who would listen to the suave salesman talk of promoters who by deceit and subterfuge coaxed money from widows as was done here in Royal Oak and elsewhere to invest with many mining ventures which were failures before they were started. Idiots who parted with it. Idiots. I hang on that word, idiots. It is a word to conjure with. I-D-I-O-T-S, idiots. My friends, we are deeply indebted for this shocking piece of information. We are taught that it is quite moral and just to filch money from innocent outsiders and pass it into the soft hands of the guilty insiders. The world around us is facing the sordid, burning facts of unemployment, of starvation, of unjust taxation. No longer can the people who love their homes and love their country be lulled into inaction by the idle optimism of the sleek parasites who exist on the crumbs dropped from the advertising table of calloused, conscienced exploiters. The Hoover campaign largely dismissed the attack and the many more that followed in weeks to come. Theodore Joslin, the president's press secretary, wasn't impressed by the rubes who took their political cues from Father Coughlin. It must be borne in mind, he wrote a confidant, that the moronic mind has a vote, and alas, too many voters are in this class. But the week after Father Coughlin's initial attack on Hoover, more than one million letters of support 
poured into the shrine of the little flower. These minds wanted to know who their champion would champion. Father Coughlin found his man in Hoover's challenger, the Democratic candidate for president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. They weren't particularly close. Coughlin actually irritated Roosevelt immensely. He thought he was presumptuous and he thought he was rude. Robert Clark is the director of archives for the Rockefeller Archive Center in New York and was a longtime archivist for the Franklin D. Roosevelt Presidential Library. Roosevelt, above all things, was a master politician, and he understood and appreciated the effectiveness of Coughlin's radio broadcast, that he had a certain political power because of the, the following that he had. I mean, at his peak, I think Coughlin had like 30 million or 40 million listeners on the radio, which is a pretty good chunk of, a, of the population when you understand that in like 1935, the population was 127 million in the country. So that's a pretty good chunk that you have to respect if you're a politician. Coughlin vigorously campaigned for Roosevelt. It is almost preposterous on my part to advocate your loyalty to Franklin D. Roosevelt. The events of the past three weeks are eloquent in themselves. Our laborers are being restored to remunerative operation. Our factories are open. The prices of our commodities have been raised. And why, may I ask you, simply because the money changers are being driven from the temple? Ladies and gentlemen, this is the day, despite all opposition to the contrary, that you remain steadfast behind the one man who can save this civilization of ours. It is either Roosevelt or Ruin. Roosevelt or Ruin, the perfect slogan for a political star on the rise. Coined by Father Coughlin himself, the catchphrase became ubiquitous among FDR's supporters. The message stuck. On November 8, 1932, Americans took to the polls. Herbert Hoover carried Pennsylvania and Delaware, Connecticut and Rhode Island, New Hampshire, Maine, and Vermont. FDR carried every other state in the Union, all 41 of them. A landslide victory rarely before seen in American history. It looks, my friends, like a real landslide this time. I am glad of this opportunity to extend my deep appreciation to the electorate of this country, which gave me yesterday such a great vote of confidence. This clear mandate shall not be forgotten. And I pledge you this, and I invite your help in the happy task of restoration. People may have said the blowout election results were because of FDR's charisma or the dire state of the country, but Father Coughlin had a different takeaway. FDR won because of him. He was no longer just a preacher or even a radio star. He was a political kingmaker with God behind him. No one who can doubt it now. So let's tell the world about it now. Happy days are Next week, if the Lord giveth his support, the Lord could taketh away. 
how Father Coughlin split from FDR and found new enemies. Try to keep cool with Cal. We try to become hard-boiled with Hardy. We try to stay out of war with Woodrow. And we try to write a new deal with Franklin Delano. We're through with the sham battle of politicians. And now we're on our own. Radioactive is a podcast from Tablet Studios and me, Andrew Lapin. The show was produced in association with the WNET Group's reporting initiative, Exploring Hate, Anti-Semitism, Racism, and Extremism, and with support from Maimonides Fund. The show was produced and edited by Josh Cross and Robert Scaramuccia with Quinn Waller. Our managing producer is Sarah Fredman Ader. Our executive producers are Liel Leibowitz and Stephanie Butnick. Our theme music is from The Ghost Writer and was composed by Alexandre Desplat. All speeches and material of Father Coughlin are authentic to the source, as well as music and other audio from his radio program. Voice acting in this episode by Daniel Strauss and Bob James. Special thanks this episode to Irv Drasden, director of American Experience, The Radio Priest. This episode was recorded at Michigan Radio, Ann Arbor's NPR station. Our recording engineer is Peg Watson. Please go rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about the show and all of Tablet's podcasts, please visit tabletmag.com slash podcasts. Major funding for Exploring Hate has been provided by the Sylvia A. and Simon B. Poita Programming Endowment to Fight Anti-Semitism, Sue and Edgar Wachenheim III, Charlotte and David Ackert, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, and Patty Asquith-Kenner. For a complete list of funders, please visit pbs.org slash exploringhate.